If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, you also the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, thank you for the fact that it is infallible. It is inerrant. It is unchanging. It is truth. It is our foundation. It is you speaking uh, to mankind, letting us know um, how much you love the world, reminding us that you are, are faithful even when we are faithless. And I praise you that you have spoken clearly, that we don't have to guess what is good, what is beautiful, what is true, what is right, but that you have revealed yourself to us in the word. So I pray, Father God, that you will wake us up to your grace, wake us up to your word, that you would allow me to explain it with clarity, uh, to explain it with power for your namesake and glory. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In the matchless, wonderful name of Jesus Christ, we do pray. And the church said, amen. All right. Well, as we begin uh, today, looking at the text that was read, um, almost as a follow-up to uh, last week's sermon with Pastor uh, Jarvis Williams, and he did a wonderful job uh, going through the Lord's Prayer and uh, uh, powerfully explained to us uh, why it is the model prayer. In fact, even as we think through this great sermon that Jesus preached that we call the Sermon on the Mount, it's important for us to know the emphasis that Jesus gives on prayer. The Lord's Prayer, if you would kind of fold the Sermon on the Mount in half, is right at the middle of the sermon, and I believe that's that's important. And Jesus talks a lot in the Sermon on the Mount about prayer, and he tells us to pray for our enemies and even in this passage, he encourages us to, to live and cultivate a heart of prayer and to pray constantly. Uh, but the thing I want us to see in this text and the way in which the Lord has encouraged me throughout uh, the week is, is with this thought that wholeheartedness, which is what Jesus is after in the sermon, right? Uh, Matthew 5, 48, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Another translation said, be you whole, as your Father in heaven is whole. In other words, internally and externally, be uh, holy, be complete. Uh, don't, don't allow there to be this disconnect, this hypocrisy, right? And so as Jesus is teaching the disciples uh, these things, he has gone over some, some really heavy subjects. I want you to imagine that you're sitting on this mountain and you're hearing Jesus's words. And he's almost flipping religion upside down. I mean, he's telling you that the ones who are, are truly blessed, the ones who are truly flourishing are not the arrogant, the proud, and the strong, but the weak, the spiritually poor, the meek. And this is, this is completely different than anything you've ever heard. And that's just, he's, he's telling you that, that what you need to be successful in your walk is, is not you uh, white-knuckling it, is not you putting your strong foot forward, but it's the opposite. It's you being dependent upon him like a child. It's you putting your weak foot forward. It's you living a life that is, is grace-filled. And then he says stuff to you like, uh, no longer do I tell you uh, that adultery is actually committing adultery with someone, but it's lusting after someone in your heart. 
And then he tells you that you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And he goes on to tell you difficult things like love your enemies. If your enemy slaps you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. If they ask you to go one mile, go another mile with you. So I just want you to imagine that you're on this mountain and you're hearing the most incredible sermon that you have ever heard. And you're thinking to yourself, this teacher is absolutely amazing. And at the same time, you're a bit confused and overwhelmed with how in the world are these things going to come about? And how in the world is God going to use me to be this way? Um, And and you feel the sense of overwhelmness. You feel the sense of joy, but also a sense of weight. And then Jesus says these words to you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open. And I believe what Jesus is inviting you to and what he's inviting me to is this sense of of childlike dependency. Um, The sense of understanding that the only way that God's kingdom is going to come and God's will will be done in us and through us is if we come to him as a child, poor in spirit and meek. Uh, The sense of childlike wonder where we uh, accept this invitation to be made and to be formed as Christ's disciples. And that's God's invitation to you today. God's invitation for you today is to receive what God wants to do through you and for you to come to him as a dependent child with this childlike wonder, believing that he wants to give good gifts to you good kingdom gifts to you. In fact, in thinking about this message, uh, we want to understand the importance of of trusting God and seeing God as a father who is is trustworthy, as a father who is emotionally healthy and and holistically good. Uh, We want to see this picture of a a child coming to a father that that he trusts and and not being afraid to, to, to plead with his father for what he wants. A child that can come to his father at 9 a.m. and ask for ice cream. Or a child that can run to his father when he scraped his leg with confidence that his father will care for him. And that's what Jesus wants us to receive today, this invitation of God's kindness and his care for us, this invitation that he is and wants to work through us. So our big idea today is this. God is extraordinarily gracious to his children. And as a result, we can, we can pray to him. And we can trust them. And God's encouragement is that we would not let life in a fallen world cause us to lose this childlike wonder. That we would not like let uh, 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 this fallen world and the brokenness that we receive stop us from going to this God who is generous and kind and who gives good gifts to his children. And so in order to cultivate this childlike wonder, we want to look at three quick movements in this text. The first is this, the childlike wonder uh, goes to the father faithfully in prayer. This childlike wonder goes to the father faithfully in, in prayer. In this text, we see that three times Jesus invites us to pray. He tells us to ask in verse uh, seven. He tells us to seek and he tells us to knock. And Jesus, throughout this sermon, is inviting us to pray because prayer is an essential element of being a disciple of Jesus. And it expresses to God the Father our submission and our dependency on us, on him. H.B. Charles says it this way, the things that you pray about are the things that you trust God to handle. 
The things that you neglect to pray about are the things that you, uh, that you trust you can handle on your own. And so God wants to cultivate in all of his children and all of his disciples a dependency on him. He wants us to come to him in prayer as a model of submission and trust. And the things that we find ourselves praying to God about is the things that we trust him to handle and the things that we find ourselves not praying about are the things that we find sufficient in ourselves. And so the question is, is what are the things that you trust that you can handle on your own? And what does it look like for you to actually uh, not trust yourself in those areas, but to take them before the Father? And when I say pray and I say take it before the Father, I, I don't mean simply think about things. Um, I don't simply mean ponder about things. But when we talk about prayer, we mean submit them to the Father. I mean ask the Father, talk to the Father about them. Jesus here gives us an invitation to ask, to seek, and to knock. And it's a picture of persistence. It's a picture of a child who is going to his father over and over again, making a request being known to God. And again, the emphasis in this text, I believe, is not just about the persistence. And Jesus certainly tells parables um, telling us to be persistent in prayer. But the emphasis in this text is that we can go and be persistent in prayer. We can go and we can ask and we can seek because God is a kind father and he is not agitated or irritated with us when we go to him in prayer. This repetition that Jesus talks to us about. Uh, does not mean that God is reluctant to give us the answer to what we ask him. And it doesn't mean that God um, has a tally and that he will only answer us after we come to him an amount of times. But rather, it means that God welcomes us to come to him as a child with wonder and dependency, trusting that he is able to do and to give us what we need. Sometimes when we pray, we feel that God is near. And so we simply can ask him with confidence. There's other times when we pray, we feel that the father is not near and like we are searching to be close to him. And there's other times when we pray, it feels like there is a wall or a door between us and God the father. And so we knock. Jesus is saying whether you are, are in a place right now in your spiritual journey where you feel the Lord is near, where you feel you have to search for him, or you feel like he is distance. it doesn't matter. God wants to hear from you. And the question becomes, what exactly uh, does God want to hear uh, from us about? This text, and many of us have grown up in churches or heard it preached in such a ways that it actually um, uh, gives us a false notion or what we would call this kind of prosperity gospel. Uh, Jesus is making some big Invitations, but he's also going in the next verse to make a big claim that, that those who ask, those who seek, those who knock, that their prayers will be answered. And so I've seen this kind of proof text, and I even went to churches before and heard preachers preach this and say, if you don't have that car, if you don't have that house, if you don't have the lifestyle that you want, it's because there is something lacking in your faith. And this is a false gospel. It's a demonic message when we hear this. This is not what Jesus is teaching. The context and what Jesus is teaching us is to ask for kingdom things. 
In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, it says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. This is the context of what Jesus is praying. He's saying, when you find yourself, remember, he's talking to new disciples, and he's giving them a, a big picture of what it means to live for him in his kingdom. And as they hear this big, beautiful picture that is both freeing as well as maybe even concerning because they've never heard it like this before, he is saying, if you come to me seeking me, if you come to me saying, God, develop these qualities in my heart. Give me a heart to love you and to live for you in this way. You can come to me with confidence knowing that I will hear you. And specifically, think about what he's just said in verses one through six of chapter seven. He's just told the disciples uh, to reject a life of hypocrisy and judging other people and to humbly examine your own heart uh, so that you can be healthy enough to help someone else on their spiritual journey. And so the very next thing he says is ask, seek, and knock. So contextually speaking, he's saying, when you find yourself struggling spiritually to love someone, to not be hypercritical, know that you cannot uh, just change your behavior um, and, and keep it and sustain it. And know you need the Father's help. And the Father wants to give this to you. He wants to develop fruit in your life so that you can be whole and so that others can experience him. So childlike wonder, it goes to God faithfully in prayer, but childlike wonder also expects God to answer kingdom prayers. The next verse is absolutely amazing. It says, for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks the door will be open. And he continues uh, in, in verse 8 again, saying the same thing, doubling down as he does in verse 7. So Jesus gives us three commands, ask, seek, and knock, and then he gives us seven promises based upon those commands or seven affirmations. And essentially, he's saying, if you cultivate a life of kingdom prayer, I will answer you. I will answer you. And for some of us, this just seems fanciful or it seems like it's, it's, it's not going to happen. But this is Jesus' words, and this is what he's encouraging us to do. In Romans chapter 8, we read these words, which shows us the heart of God the Father, and that this isn't some scribal mistake that was placed in the Bible, that God really does want to do a work in us and through us, in our city. He wants to do exceedingly above and beyond all we can ask or think, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 and 20. Like he is desperately wanting and, and ready to find a people who will seek his face who will not bow to, to, to false idols and not bow to, to this culture, but who believes that he is a generous father who is sowing generous seeds all throughout this city, this nation and world, and who is mighty to save. And he says, ask, seek, and knock, and know that I will work and I will do it. Romans chapter 8 says, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he also not grant us everything? If God the Father gave us his only son, Jesus Christ, as a ransom for us, spiritually speaking, 
Why would he not give us the fruit of the kingdom? Why, he, why would he not cultivate in us more patience and love and long-suffering? Why will he not make us look more like Jesus so that we can be salt and, law, and light to our neighbors and co-workers and friends? So childlike wonder goes with him in faith. And here's my concern as a pastor. Here's my concern as a Christian. <laughs> my concern is, is that the reason why we often don't see this type of fruit is because what we ask for, what we seek for, and, and what we're knocking on heaven's doors for are not kingdom things. That we as Christians, that we have become distracted and we have become almost a model of, of this world. And the things that we find ourselves asking, seeking, and knocking for often are things that that are, 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 are centered around us and our own kingdom. That's why Jesus said, cultivate a heart that prays your kingdom come, your will be done. And in order for me to pray your kingdom come and your will be done, I have to learn uh, to, to pray, Lord, not my will, but your will. Perhaps the most powerful prayer that some of us can pray uh, this morning is, Lord, help my kingdom to go. Worldliness has infiltrated the church. And most of the times when we find ourselves desperately praying, it's because we want things and not Jesus. We want to be able to keep up with the Joneses. We want to be able to live this American dream. We want to be able to find our identity and sufficiency in our bank account, our 401k, where we live, how we live, who's our friend, our status as an adult, whether it's married, single, happily married, or happily single, rather than in God's kingdom. The Apostle John gives us this warning. He says, do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one that does the will of God remains forever. God has saved you, snatched you, given you and me life in his son, Christ Jesus, so that we would be a part of his kingdom and see the world filled with his glory. May our prayers reflect that. Childlike wonder also knows that there is no one like the Heavenly Father. The thing that helps to extinguish our worldliness is for us to remember how faithful and how good God the Father is. Look at what Jesus does in verse 9. He asks a question. He says, who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now, what Jesus does here is, 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 is pretty self-explanatory and pretty amazing, but, but he gives us a, a comparison to uh, uh, the average heavenly father, right? And uh, average earthly father versus the, the, uh, the heavenly father. And he, just, and he calls the average earthly father evil. 
And what he's doing is, is he's uh, in some ways given us a, a picture of hyperbola uh, because the average earthly father here is able to give good gifts. But in other words, he's not. He's pointing us back to the depravity of men and the effects of the fall and how all of our fathers, no matter how good or great they are, how they are, are, are men who are, are, are wounded and men who are wounded wound others. And I don't care how great your earthly father is, the fact is your earthly father is going to leave a a father wound in you or a a wound in someone else because they are are sinners. And even if they're Christian, they're sinners saved by grace. And Jesus' point is this. If the average father knows how to give good gifts, if the average father's uh, son comes up to him and asks for bread, gives them bread instead of a stone, or asks for fish, gives them fish instead of a serpent, how much more will your heavenly father who is perfect, who is all wise and all knowing, who isn't just good, who who doesn't just do good, but who is good, who is the epitome of, of unconditional love, how much more will he give you if you ask? And childlike wonder is, is growing to believe this more and more that God the Father is, is for me. And perhaps uh, one way to constantly remind us that God the Father is for us is to just remember what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. And I think part of the hangup for us is that we, we stop the gospel at forgiveness of sins. And the reason why some of our hearts are, are just dry and, and perhaps even taken away by the lust of this world, the pride of life, and the lust of the flesh is because our gospel ends with the fact that Christ has forgiven us for our past, present, and future sins. And don't get me wrong, that is a part of the gospel. It is glorious and it is beautiful, but that is not the gospel. There is another world, there's another step to the gospel. There is something that is so glorious and so beautiful and so mind-boggling that it keeps us coming back to the Father because it helps us to realize how gracious and how good and how merciful he is. God has not just forgiven you of your past, present, and future sins, but he's done even more than that. He has uh, given you the righteousness of his son, Jesus. Christ's righteousness has been imputated upon you. And here's what that means. Here's what that means. I want you to imagine that I have overdrawn at my my local bank, okay? Um, And I've done it egregiously. Forgot to transfer money. I mean, this has never happened. Forgot to transfer money from one account to another account. And I'm just out shopping, and it's like seven withdrawals, and there's nothing in my checking account. And so as a result, I get penalized by my bank. And I look online and I'm just freaking out. I'm like, oh my goodness, I've, oh, I've overdrawn in a major way. And so I call the bank and I tell them, this is a huge mistake. Um, you see that I'm broke. What logic is it for you to charge me more money for, for overdrawing <laughs> and I'm broke? Like now I'm like negative 125. Like what logic, who penalizes for that, right? Um, and, and, and my bank teller says, Mr. Williams, I see that you do have some money in another account, and this is enough to allow you to break even, right? And I'm going to be really thankful to my local about that they have forgiven me for overwithdrawing and that I'm broken even, right? 
I'm forgiven. Praise God. But here's the truth. I'm still broke. (laughs) Now I'm at zero. But imagine that bank saying, not only are we going to forgive you of the debt that you owe us, but Mr. Williams, we are going to put a billion dollars into your account. You are now a billionaire. Congratulations. (laughs) Right? I am going to leave that bank excited, thrilled, right? I mean, I'm just going, it's going to be the happiest day of my life besides me marrying my wife, Amber, having five kids and being called to pastor Sojourn Midtown, right? (laughs) Happiest day of my life because I'm now a billionaire. Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ says that Christ, in Christ Jesus, we have been forgiven of our debt. But not only have we been forgiven of our debt, but that God has made a transfer into our account. And we are spiritual billionaires. And that when I sin and when I fall short, that all I have to do is is make a spiritual withdrawal and ask God for forgiveness. To see that Christ is my mediator, that he has not only given me forgiveness, but he has given me his righteousness. And that there's nothing that I ever can do that could separate me from his love. And so when I go to God the Father, I go to him not as one who is in debt, but one who is spiritually enriched. This is the good news. That the God of this universe has forgiven you not of, of $125, but of a trillion dollars spiritually because your sin debt was more than you can ever repay and that he has given you the righteousness of his son and it's not a billion dollars. It's it's an immeasurable amount of spiritual money that you can never, never run dry. And many of us, when we have a picture of God the Father, we don't have a picture of this generous God who is eager to make you look more like Jesus eager to allow your life to make much of him in the ordinary mundane things, eager to just to do things above and beyond that you can ever ask or think. If he did not spare his own son for you, how much more will he give you in Christ Jesus? And for some of us, this sounds too good. And this is a major obstacle for us. And here's some obstacles that keep us from going to God the Father this way. One is that we have prayed about significant things in the past and they have went unanswered. Some of us, the reason we we no longer go to childlike wonder like we did when the Lord first saved us and we no longer eagerly wake up in the morning to talk to God the Father is because we have prayed for some significant things and they have not come to pass. And here's what we want to remember is we want to remember that, that when we are praying, we are, are praying uh, to God the Father. We are submitting our request, but we are praying to an all-wise God who actually, even though what we want is significant and meaningful to us, who knows what's best to us. Alec Motler says this, that whatever we ask God was pledged to give, then I, for one, would never pray again because I, would nev- because I would never pray again, because I would uh, not have sufficient confidence in my own wisdom to ask God for anything. And I think if you considered it, you would agree. It would impose an intolerable burden on frail human wisdom if by this prayer promise God was pledged to give whatever we ask when we ask it 
in exactly the terms we ask. How could we bear their burden? And what Alex is doing is he's pointing us to the fact that God is not promising to give us whatever we want, whenever we want, but rather he's promising that he will answer and he will give to us according to his will and his kingdom. So he's encouraging us to pray kingdom prayers with confidence, knowing that if it is best for us, it will come to pass. And he's encouraging us not to trust in our own wisdom because we are frail, unwise human beings and we don't see the whole picture. We don't see the whole picture. Proverbs 3, 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding and all your ways know him or acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Childlike wonder comes to the Lord with an attitude of faith. Faith says, for all I trust him. Even though I think that the significant thing that I've prayed for, that I feel like I'll be a better person for, that my life will be most fulfilled if I had, I'm going to trust that you know me best and that you have looked at the outcome of my life and you have considered your glory and what I have or don't have is what's best for me in the long run. But a second obstacle is that Sometimes we look at the prayers that other people cared about and the fact that God answered them. And we think that perhaps God has not answered us because we're somehow less than or that God is playing favoritism. And in this text, Jesus says an important word to us where he says in verse eight, for everyone who asks receives. And what this reminds me of is that God does not ask or uh, does not answer or not answer prayers based upon favoritism. And some of our obstacles to going to God with this childlike prayer is we believe that God is good, but because he has not answered a significant prayer for us, we have a hard time believing that he's good to us because we're playing the comparison game. But the Bible tells us that God does not have a respect of, of persons. And that when a righteous person prays, that it is powerful and it will have its due effect. The Bible also tells us that all of us who have been bought by Jesus, that we can go boldly before his throne of grace with confidence. And so God's invitation to you is for you uh, to stop setting your eyes on what another person have, has and what you don't have. And to fix your eyes on Jesus, as Hebrews 12 says. Because there's always going to be someone who has something that you don't have that you wish you had. And that person that has that thing that you wish you had and that you believe will give you contentment is probably tempted to look at someone else who has something that they don't have and who they think that if they only had that would give that contentment. And that person that they're looking at that has something that they wish that they didn't have, that they believe that if they had, they would have contentment, is looking at someone else and saying, man, if I just had this, I would have more contentment and more joy. And that, you see how that goes. And the only thing the Bible tells us, and we believe by faith, that will give us contentment and joy is Jesus. Building our life on anything else is sinking sand. The third obstacle for some of us is philosophically is that prayer is confusing. Prayer is confusing. Some of us, when we think about prayer, we think about it in two extremes. One may be like a Shakespeare, a Shakespeare play. <laughs> 
and the other may be like a, a chess game. In Shakespeare play, we know that actors and actresses, they are in a play and they are acting out a story that feels like there is, is freedom and that their decisions are theirs, but in actuality, they're just acting out a story that has already been written. And so we have the attitude, why should I pray if God is going to do whatever he wants to do? In other of us, we have this other extreme where we believe that uh, life is kind of like a chess game, that we don't know the outcome, that the future is unknown, and it is determined by different moves that other people makes. And at the end of the day, that God doesn't know the future, that God uh, cannot determine the moves of humanity, and that he is just responding to evil and to the fallenness of this world like us. And the problem with this, this rationale and philosophy is that uh, is the Bible. <laughs> uh, the Bible doesn't confirm either of these to be the picture of the way things work. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign, that he is in control, and that he knows the future because it's his future. And that he is directing the, the course of events to an end. And while that may sound like this kind of Shakespeare uh, extreme, it is not because the Bible also affirms that our prayers do matter, that it does change things, and that it does change me, and that in some way I am actively participating in the mission of God through my prayer, and that when I ask, when I seek, and when I knock, and when God answers that I have impacted his kingdom through those prayers. And this isn't a contradiction. Uh, this, is, this is simply a mystery. That somehow in God's sovereignty and goodness, both are true. Archbishop William Temple says this, when I pray, coincidences happen. And when I stop praying, the coincidences stop happening. <laughs> the final criticism an obstacle that we have with, with praying with childlike wonder is, is that we often don't feel like praying. Perhaps life has beat us up to the point that we just don't feel like it, or perhaps it's not a priority for us or we're too busy. And my encouragement to you is that you're too busy not to pray. Ruth Graham says this, pray when you feel like it, for it is a sin to neglect such an opportunity. Pray when you don't feel like it, for it is dangerous to remain in such a condition. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not giving us um, uh, just some wise words and a, a neat suggestion, but rather he has given us a command to pray. He's saying being a faithful disciple, living in a fallen world, the only way that you are going to flourish is by, is by cultivating a relationship with God the Father. And that's one of the benefits of prayer. It is, it is relational. It's not a transaction. It is you talking to a real God who sits and who rules over all things, who wants to be near to you. Not a God who has started the world and just kind of let it spin on, on its own, but a God who is actively participating in, in all things coming to pass and who wants to know you and wants you to participate in it. Isaiah 55, 6 says, seek the Lord while he may be found and call to him while he is near. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and incomprehensible things that you do not know. 
Philippians 4, 6, don't worry about anything but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your request to God. Colossians 4, 2, devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert with thanksgiving. So what's my application to you? My application today is simply just pray. Ask, seek, knock, and know that your heavenly Father who is gracious and kind, that he hears you, that he sees you, and that he is eager to answer his prayer according to his purposes and his will and his timing for your good and for his glory. Pray, pray, pray like Moses prayed when he had a burden for leading the children of Israel. And they were getting the best of them. Pray like Hannah prayed when she felt that God had forgotten her. Pray like Nehemiah prayed when he received the bad news that the walls of Jerusalem were broken down. Pray like David prayed when he ran to a cave to escape from Saul. Pray. Pray like Daniel prayed in the midst of persecution, rather uh, to be uh, devoured by lions than to neglect talking to the Heavenly Father. Pray like Paul and Silas prayed in the middle of the night as they sat in jail wondering what their end would be. Pray. If you need faith to see beyond your circumstances, pray. If you need a divine intervention for a difficult situation, pray. If you need strength to resist temptation, pray. If you need victory over besetting sins in your life, pray. If you need wisdom for a tough decision, pray. If you need a door of opportunity to be opened for you, pray. If you need healing and restoration in your health, pray. If you need reconciliation in relationships, pray. If you need grace to be faithful in a hard situation at work, pray. If you need hope in a season of hopelessness, pray. Pray without ceasing knowing that your heavenly father is gracious. He sees you, he loves you, he knows you, and he's coming for you. He sees you, he knows you, and he's coming for you. And how do we know that? We know that because he saw us when we were at our worst. And every Sunday we celebrate the goodness of God by taking a meal called communion, reminding us that God answers prayers and he answers them the right way. The Bible tells us it was in Gethsemane's garden that Jesus was facing crucifixion and he prayed to the Father. He says, let this cup, the cup of God's wrath, Pass me. And God did not answer that prayer for Jesus in the way that Jesus wanted it at that time because Jesus was crucified on Calvary's cross and he was crucified for our sins. His body was broken and his blood was shed. And yet God did answer that prayer because he did not allow his son to be neglected in death. But he allowed him to be raised from the dead so that sin and death would not have his final word on him and on you. God is an all-wise father who may allow us to go through significant challenges that we want to be saved from, but who sees the beginning and the end and who works according to his promises and purposes. Here, soldier, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. If you're a Christian, we want to invite you to take this meal at this time 
If you're a Christian who are, who's, who's really struggling habitually in your heart to, to forgive and you've kind of hardened your heart to a place of, of holding something against a brother or sister, we ask you to just sit and to pray, Lord, soften my heart. If you're not a Christian doing this meal, we're going to ask you not to partake in this meal. This is just a family meal uh, for Christians. But as you sit in your seat, it's not a, a sitting of shame. It's actually a sitting, a sitting of strength. Um, it is a sitting of you humbling yourself and, and not taking a meal, uh, knowing that uh, you are not right with God in the way that I have, have said um, and that you, you need to process that. Those of you who are in the front, you can come to the front, take communion. Those of you in the back, you can go to the back. Gluten-free communion is over to my left. Let's pray.